but if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Exodus 35. We're going to read a little bit from chapter 35, a little bit from 36. Um, and I got to tell you, it's a really awesome, eye-opening text. Um, it's literally one of the most incredible passages of Scripture, um, and one that I think uh, our gathering tonight will really be encouraged by, because you all, you, you all, and the folks of you that come out for these services, um, th- this is an area that I know that you all already exceed in, already do well in, already are faithful in, but and, uh, these scriptures, um, they do challenges, but I think this scripture is going to encourage us and, 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 and remind us that uh, there's, there's always a reason to continue to do the right thing and to do the thing that God has called us to do. But if, if you are challenged tonight, um, just know that God's word is good um, and God's word is, 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 has our best in mind. We're going to talk about that. Um, uh, a lot tonight, and uh, we're going we're gonna to enjoy what might be our last time in Exodus. Maybe there's one more um, chapter we'll study, but the remainder of this book is, um, is a lot of listings and a lot of um, uh, kind of uh, fulfillment of things we've already read about. We'll talk about that next week. But um, I, I want to preface, and I want to frame this text in our talk tonight, and I feel like it's important to do this, um, with a little different approach than normal. We don't usually start our messages like this. I really don't start any, uh, haven't really ever started any kind of conversation like this before, but why not? Let's try it. Um, I, I want to talk about one of Satan's favorite things, um, and uh, I know this isn't news for y'all, but God and his kingdom and his people, we are a victorious people. Um, we are a people that have God's favor and have God's grace, and we have nothing to worry about. There is no enemy that is bigger than God, but we do have an enemy. Um, the Bible calls him Satan. He's the saint's accuser. Um, he's often referred to as the devil um, and, and so forth, but Satan was once an angelic creature, um, that in the presence of God, he was an angel or one of the angelic creatures, he, and he chose to rebel against God. There's not a lot about this in the Bible, but the fallen nature of our world um, really explains or ex- is explained by the fact that long ago in the in in, in, in history's past, there was a rebellion. In, in heaven, uh, that Satan, one of these angelic creatures, rebelled against God. And, and we don't know when this happened in, in history, uh, but clearly um, God had already planned to create our universe, to create our galaxy, to create our solar system, to create our planet. And, and he wasn't about to allow this rebellion to stop or thwart his plan. God already had his heart and already had a desire to create life, to create our planet, to create us to create people, Um, and clearly he was going to use and could and would use that rebellion and leverage that rebellion for his glory in the long run, but wherever that took place in history, uh, we don't know, but God had a plan, and he saw through that plan, and sure enough, after God created um, the, the, the earth, placed man in, in, in the garden, Adam and Eve, the first people, um, Satan incited rebellion um, on earth. He tempted Adam and he tempted Eve into sin, and they fell into sin. We know that story very well. They fell into sin, and when they fell into sin, all of humanity, all of their descendants, every one of us that comes from that original, those original two, all people fell into sin because of their rebellion, because of their sin. We all are born with that sin. It's not fair, but the reality is that life, that things became, uh, thing, fairness went out the window when they made that decision. But of course, fairness would have been that God would have punished them. He would have judged them. He would have destroyed them, but he did not. He did not eliminate them just like he did not eliminate Satan or sin because God is patient. He is patient and he loves every one of us. And rather than just doing away with all of evil, he allows it to continue because he doesn't want to do away with all of us. 
He loves us and he wants to give people time to realize that there is salvation, there is help, there is a better way. Rather than being judged, he gives us the opportunity to be saved. All that trust and follow him can be saved. But Satan remains persistent in his tactics, in his attempts, and in many ways, many believers are shadowed and influenced by Satan's deception and his lies. And I want to talk tonight about one of Satan's favorite things, one of Satan's favorite lies to tell, which he works diligently to implant and plant in everyone's mind, even and especially believers, that we know that the devil, the enemy's greatest tactic is to deceive people, to deceive believers even. And maybe you're wondering, what could it be? What could one of his favorite lies to tell be? I don't know the mind of Satan, nor do I really want to know the mind of Satan, but I have a hunch He wants you and he wants me. He wants us to believe and accept. He wants even the most devoted believer to have this one thought, this one fear running through their mind at all times. And this is Satan's favorite lie to tell. If I put God first, I'll have it worse. He wants that to be a fear going under every decision we ever think about, every choice we ever uh, consider. He wants us to be afraid He wants a believer to worry. If I put God first, I might actually have it worse. Now, here's the thing. That exact statement may not run through your mind, but in the essence, what is behind our questioning, behind our wondering, behind our considering, behind our doubting, we all wonder if our obedience to God is really the right option, the best choice for us. And I believe that is something that Satan plants in every mind, especially believers, that he makes us doubt. He causes us to wonder and consider, if I am to put God first, what if I actually have it worse? What if doing what God wants me to do isn't the best for me? Now, Satan works hard and is successful in causing every believer at some point in their walk and sometimes even entrenching us concerning certain subjects and areas of our life. His goal, his aim is that we think, obeying that, whatever that is, his, his goal is that we would think obeying that is just unrealistic for me. Yeah, it might be God's word, and it might be God's will for somebody, but just for me, that, it's not a command for everyone, right? And it's not saying that obeying God in every area is impossible. It's saying that obeying God in this one area, whatever it might be for you, He wants us to think that obeying that is just unrealistic for me. It may be achievable for some, but for me, it's just unlikely. See, the root of this is really the notion that obedience isn't impossible. It's just an inconvenience. See, the, really, the reality of it is, it's not suggesting that, that, we, can't, that, that we can't do what we're worried about. It's that it's just going to be an inconvenience for us some way, somehow. Now, here's the thing. I'm not suggesting that we aren't sinners and that we don't struggle. We all struggle. It's human to struggle, and God understands that we struggle. He understands us, and he loves us in spite of our sin. I'm also not suggesting that by God's empowering grace that we have that, that anything is beyond our potential because in Christ, nothing is impossible. I believe that. You believe that. We all should believe that. Obedience may appear to be an inconvenience, though, even if it's possible, something in us says, you know what, this just isn't going to work for me. 
And this, this is Satan's favorite thing, his favorite lie to plant within all of us, to cause us to believe that obeying God is not always our best choice by default. And this is the reason why, maybe in that one area of your life, that you know what you should do, and you know your life would be better for it. But something in you wonders, and maybe you don't know if your life would be better for it. Maybe you wonder if your life would be better for it, and that's the reason why you wonder if you could actually or should actually do it. Now, Satan loves that many believers are under this deception because if he can convince us that obedience is a burden, if he can convince us that God's word and God's will is not for our best, if he can convince us that obedience to God is an inconvenience, he can ruin and rob you of the greatest blessing of Christianity, the greatest blessing of the Christian life. And here's the thing. This one thing is on the line if we allow Satan to deceive us in this. Our joy. That if Satan can convince us that obedience is a burden, that it's an inconvenience, he can ruin and rob us from this greatest blessing, from the joy that God promises every believer. See, the New Testament is full of reminders that suggest that every Christian faces this particular sort of opposition from the enemy. John, one of the disciples, John, who lived longer than anyone else uh, of the twelve, John, in one of his letters late in his life, wrote this. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. His commandments are not burdensome. So John writes to us, listen, that if we love God, we will do what he has told us to do. And, and by all means, they're not a burden. And John's getting that, that they're actually the opposite of that. They're actually relieving. They're actually going to improve our life if we do what God has said to do. Now, I'm sure that John was inspired by the words that he heard come out of Jesus' own mouth the night before Jesus died. John heard Jesus say this, and this is what John wrote. Jesus said in the book of John, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commands and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So what is Jesus saying? I have obeyed God. I've abided in his love. I've walked in his will. And I have a tremendous amount of joy because of that. And if you do as I have done, if you obey God always and in every circumstance, not doubting, not fear, not wondering if it's not the best, but if you trust that God's will is best, God's word is right, and you do as he said you should do, your joy will be and can be full. Jesus' will for you is not to, that you begrudge or loathsomely obey out of duty. His will for you is that you will be joyful. And that's something important. That, listen, I, I don't want anybody to think that God just wants to beat you over the head with the commandments and he just wants you to do what he wants you to do without there being any benefit. For God is a good father. Everything that God has told us and says that we should do is because he wants to see us reach our full potential, especially when it comes to joy. Joyful is found through full obedience. That joyfulness is found when we are fully and wholly obedient to God. One last thing before we look at our text. Jesus told a parable. It's so encouraging, but it's also so clear. He said this about the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure. Now, treasures are good things, right? Treasures are things that you would do anything to get, right? He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which when a man found out it was in that field, 
He marked the X on the spot and he did everything he had to do. He sold and bought the sold his possessions, bought the field, rented an excavator, bulldozed the field in his joy searching for that treasure. Do you get that? That the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure in a field and Jesus says when a believer follows God and obeys God, it is for the joy it is for their joy, and they will be full of joy when they go on this pursuit. So that doesn't seem like someone who is just overwhelmed by, by, you know, by laws and rules. This is the picture of a life of a believer, the life of a Christian, who is full of joy because they realize there's no greater way to live. So when Satan tries to convince you that obedience is inconvenience, remember these verses. And there are plenty of more verses you can look at that obedience in every category is a pathway to joy. Not just some joy, but joyful, joyfulness. Just think, and I know it won't take much thought, what biblical commands have you resisted because you were convinced that obedience would somehow inconvenience you? We've all been there before in some area of our life, right? What, what's something that God said you should do that you've resisted because you were convinced that you just couldn't do it or it would be an inconvenience if you did it. Now, it could be a change that you need to make in your personal life. It could be a change that you need to make in your relationships, your marriage. It could be a change that needs to happen with your attitude. It could be that God says you should do this or you should behave like this or you should stop doing that. And you have resisted it because you feel like it would inconvenience you and you're convinced that the way you do things, and maybe you've always done them that way, you just can't change. And doing it God's way might not be impossible, but it would just be a heck of an inconvenience. How many of us have accepted a way of life, even though God has told us there's a better way, because we just didn't know if it was going to work for us, or we just thought it would be too much of a hassle to try to make it work? See, sometimes the biggest inconvenience is that we just want to do it our way. And it just seems like God's way is so archaic or so complicated, just weird. But I believe, and if we believe the Scriptures, more importantly, if we believe that Jesus is who He says He was, if we believe that He died for our sins, He released us from our sins, He freed us from our sins, He gives us the opportunity to obey God, that He was the only pathway and is the only pathway to joy and fulfillment, then can we really afford to ignore God's Word and God's will and God's way? If we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, died for our sins, rose to give us life, can we afford, can a Christian afford to turn their head to a way that God says is better? I don't think so. And many of you know this, many of us know this, and this is just affirmation. Now the good news. The good news is tonight's text deals with perhaps one of the toughest areas when it comes to obedience. And if this is not a tough area for you, then maybe there's another tough area that you can copy and paste this introduction in front of. And you can say, you know what, I know God has been telling me I need to love them or I need to do this for them or I need to overcome this or I need to face that. You have been reminded, we've been reminded tonight that God has been telling you that because he says that that is the best for you and there is more joy found in that than the alternative. But since this is the next chapter in our study, we're not going to ignore what God says to us about this subject. And again, our minds are going to instantly think about one specific thing, but this is much broader than what our minds might go to tonight. So Exodus 34, 35, 4 through 9, here is a very specific command, but also a very broad command. 
at the same time from God. Moses spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, This is the thing which the Lord commanded. So this is the thing which, is, which God has commanded. It's a pretty big thing to say, right? This is the big thing that God wants us to know in every day of our life. This is something we ought to do or ought to be doing. Take from among you an offering to the Lord. Whoever is of a willing heart, let him or her bring an offering to the Lord. Gold, silver, bronze, but it doesn't stop at money. Blue, purple, scarlet thread, fine linen, goat's hair, ram skins, dyed red, badger skins, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for anointing oil for the sweet incense, onyx stones, stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate. Now, if you don't know what that's talking about, these are all items that they needed to build the tabernacle, to build the house of worship, to build a place that God's people could come together, worship together, fellowship with each other, and do ministry for one another out of. This was the headquarters for their house of worship, for their community of faith. Now, you know why the scripture deals with this topic of giving so much? Because we struggle and miss out on so much joy in this one area. But this isn't just about giving money. Notice the verses do not just say, hey, write a check to some charity or write a check to some faith community. This is a command to give, not just monetarily, but give from our supply, from the things that we have, the things that God has given to us. Use those things in a way that can impact someone or something bigger than ourselves. Use the things that God has given us in some way to glorify Him and to honor Him and to bless somebody else. Now, notice these items are very specific, aren't they? Now, when the Jews left Egypt, the people gave them money and supplies. Now, when the Jews were leaving Egypt, remember the, the Passover and the death angel came through and, and, destroyed, and killed the firstborn, but the Jews were spared. And that's the night that Pharaoh said, get out, you can go. I, want to, I don't want to see anybody from the, the Jewish people ever again. So when they were leaving, the Egyptians were, because of their religious ways, because of how, how they saw the world, they thought if they just gave a bunch of money to these Jews and gave their possessions to the Jews, that somehow the Jews would, the, the God of the Jews would, you know, spare them. So they, as the Jews were leaving, they made all these offerings to the Jewish people. And God told the Jews they could take this offering. They made these offerings of money and also of all these different supplies that would have been very resourceful items that you could make clothes out of or make buildings out of in that day and time. So God allowed the Jews to take this stuff from the Egyptians as a peace offering. Now, God is now asking them to bring these specific materials to him for the building up of his tabernacle and for the building up of this community. The tabernacle wasn't being constructed with rare or impossible items or expensive items. It was being made from things that everybody had. You hear that? God was not asking them to contribute in areas or in ways that were impossible, but in areas and in ways that were very much possible. God had made it easy to obey Him. You see that? The very things that God needed to build this tabernacle, to build this community, to start their nation, were the things that they had been handed. God made it easy to obey Him. Yet the temptation would have been still been very real because this was the only possessions they had, right? Yes, they had been given these things by the Egyptians, but now they're out in the desert wandering in the middle of nowhere. These things were the only 
you know, uh, possessions, the only valuable things that they had to their name. So to give them up would have been to lose something. But the point of this is that God never asks us to contribute by impossible means. He doesn't set unobtainable expectations over anybody. That God has given each and every one of us different resources, different talents, different abilities. And the commandment here, not just a request, but the commandment here that God says, I want you to find some way to contribute to the bigger community, the bigger picture. Now, let's not underscore, this is not just God asking, but God is commanding them to contribute with generous hearts. Here's what we know from the scripture, though. God doesn't want to force anybody to do anything, right? God does not want anyone to do anything out of obligation. He wants our service, he wants our contributions to be genuine. He does not want you to pretend to love someone. He wants you to actually love someone, right? He doesn't want you to, to just give because someone told you to. He wants you to give because you want to. Does this mean that if it's not genuine, then we are dismissed? I don't think so. I think if we're generous, we need to ask ourselves, if we aren't generous, we need to ask ourselves, why? If there's something in us that says, you know what, I just don't really care about nobody but myself. Now that's, you know, hey, that sounds bad when you say it, but that's not, you know, a, a very rare thing. That's a very popular thing. It's a very common thing. If there's something in us that says, you know what, I just, I'm just not a generous person. I just don't really have it in me. I don't really have the ability or the means or whatever, the, 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 the wherewithal. We need to ask ourselves why. But we also need to pray that God would give us a generous, a willing heart to contribute to the world, to contribute to the faith community, to contribute to somebody's life in some way, shape, or form. Now, Maybe you're wondering, why is it a big deal? Like, you know, in, of course a preacher says this stuff because I don't, you know, people like me always beg for money. This is not about a church wanting money. This is not about God wanting money because God owns everything. This is about God wanting us to achieve and God wanting us to reach a level of joy. Now, follow me. There is no greater joy that can be found than the one that is found through giving, through pouring yourself out for somebody or something else. So if you want a generous heart, while you pray for a generous heart, you can actually start trying and seeing that this actually works. While you pray for a generous heart, practice having one. And that maybe sounds silly, maybe it sounds a little bit, uh, you know, far-fetched, but while we pray for God to make us generous, we can actually start practicing having one. Doing it even if we don't feel like it, but doing it with kind of one eye open and wondering, what is this all about? What is God going to do for me? What am I going to achieve? What am I going to experience if I actually start thinking about somebody besides myself? Now, if you're serious about wanting a generous, joyful heart, it may take restructuring your life in some way, shape, or form. But it's worth it. It's worth it. Now, there are tons of passages I could show you that talk about joyful giving and joyful sacrifice, joyful living, but we don't have time, and we've already read those all before. But the reality, the short of it is, we give to God because God first gave to us, right? Why is God asking them to give to him? Because he gave it to them in the first place, and he had a use for it. But we also, we give to others because we want to demonstrate how God has given to us. Giving is the best way to demonstrate God's love because God loved us by giving us someone, by giving us Jesus. 
I know when we hear give in church, we think dollar signs, but this is bigger than that. It's bigger than that. This is about what we give away every day. Because every one of us, we have two roads we can take every day. And I've got to ask you just two questions. How much of yourself do you give away each day? And the way you can answer that or know how much you give away is how much of each day is about taking, saving, and gaining for you? Now, maybe you know that person that all they ever talk about is taking, is making more and saving more and gaining more, right? And that tells you they don't, very, they don't think very much at all about giving when it's all about taking, saving, and gaining, right? How much of yourself do you give away each day? How much of your life is about giving and how much of your life is about taking or saving or gaining in some personal way? Now, I'm about to make a statement that's very convicting for me, so just know that this is not easy for myself to preach this. But if the majority of each day is just about what you can make and what you can save and what you can gain, even what you can buy and what you can spend, there's a problem that we need to address. And you know why this is difficult? Because we live in a country that is all about taking and saving and gaining and buying and spending, don't we? And why the church needs to talk about this more than anything, maybe, because we all struggle with this. Because our joy is on the line. Now, here's a statement I'm going to make that is very convicting. Joy is found in making an impact, not through being a pack rat. And I use that word because I've been called that before a few times. Whether it's money, stuff, or personal accomplishments, that joy does not last. Believe me, I know. And listen, you can have all you want. Make all you want, save all you want, store up all you want. But if it gets in the way of giving your life away, get it out of the way. You know, America's one big toy box. American, the American dream is to have a bigger toy box than anybody else and have more stuff in that toy box. But to what end? There's no joy found down that road. And, and this is bigger, and I'm not just picking on anybody, but this is bigger than, well, I do things for my family. You know why it's bigger than that? Because family gives back to you. This is bigger than, well, I do things for my family, so I can't give otherwise because I give to them. Listen, you know why that doesn't count? Because family gives back. There's a joy that is found even higher than the love that you get from doing for those that do back for you. The highest form of joy is found when we give to those who cannot give back to us. We get to experience and share in the generosity of God. When we give like this. Because God gives to us. Nothing we can do can ever pay him back. Yet he takes pleasure in giving to us. And loving us anyway. There's a level of joy that is found. In not just doing good for those that love and love. That you love and love you back. Jesus said. If you do good to those who do good for you. What benefit is that to you? What, what, what it was actually doing for you. And Jesus is concerned about the fulfillment of our souls. And you maybe think, well, I never thought about that before. He says, I'm thinking about it for you. That you're missing something. For even sinners do the same. He says, and if you lend to those who, whom you expect to receive from, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners and get back the same. And he says, if you just do good for those that always do good back for you, you're not really getting anything that God wants you to actually experience. You're just swapping love. You're swapping generosity. He says, 
But love your enemies. Do good and lend. Expect nothing in return. And your reward will be great. Well, you didn't, I didn't even know there was a reward for me. He says, exactly. But when you love those who are not like you and do good for those that are not like you and lend to those that cannot give back to you, you're stepping onto a level that maybe you've never realized you could. And listen to how he says this. You will be sons or daughters of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. So be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. You know what he's saying? Just as God is kind to our ungrateful and sinful selves, there is a joy that God finds in doing that for us that you can find as well when you model that same generosity. That's why there are laws about helping the poor because it would allow the Jews to understand God's position above them that they could experience true joy. A goal for the church is that we be more active and more ministry-minded to see everyone contribute and arrive at this joy. Nonetheless, anything we offer to a church, to others, we ultimately offer it to God, being obedient in, the, in an area that we don't always see immediate return, but receiving a greater sense of joy, a supernatural measure of joy. That's why we sing. That's why we give. That's why we unify. Because our joy is on the line. See, there's somebody at work that you just don't know how you could ever love them. Because God knows they're never going to love you back. Maybe there's somebody in your family that, that isn't someone that you receive back from. That they're just, they just take and take and take. Maybe there's something in, your, in, in the world that you're living in, the place that God's put you, that you know that you could give to that cause, you could do for that person, but it's just not going to benefit you in a, in a reciprocating way. But God is saying there's actually something higher than that. There's something better than that that you can receive by doing for those that cannot do back for you. And here's, what he, here's the goal, here's the, the, the end of all this, is that we wire our sense of joy with our measure of sacrifice. Rather than measuring joy based on what we get back, the Word teaches, God teaches that the true joy comes from doing things for those that can't give back and can't do good back. Now that doesn't sound, that maybe doesn't sound uh, or make sense to us, but the Word says that's actually the way that God, that's actually a pathway to joy that we've never experienced before. Proverbs 11 says, one gives freely yet grows all the richer. Another withholds that what he should give and only suffers. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched and the one who waters will himself be watered. And that's not meaning receiving riches, but it means receiving this joy, receiving this blessing. If you look down at verse number 10, notice this isn't just about giving resources, but it says all who are gifted artisans, all who are talented in, in a certain area are to come and make all the Lord. The, the gifts that you have, the skills that you have, and this isn't just doing it in a house like this. This is doing it in the world God's put you in. Whether it's a gift with this or that or an area that God has given you skill in, doing that for him and doing that for the good and glory of the kingdom and for the good of somebody else, that is a way of showing God I'm giving, not taking. I want to close by reading verses 20 through 29. And I want you to pay attention to how many times you hear the phrases willing hearts or stirred hearts. 
All the congregation of the children of Israel departed from the presence of Moses. Then everyone came whose heart was stirred, everyone whose spirit was willing, and they brought the Lord's offering for the work of the tabernacle of meeting, for all its service and the holy garments. They came, both men and women, as many as had a willing heart, and brought earrings and nose rings, rings and necklaces, all jewelry of gold that is every man who made an offering of gold to the Lord. They were taking their jewelry and using it to, to, to buy products and, 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 make resort, and actually make uh, platforms that were made out of gold. Every man with whom has found purple and blue and scarlet thread, fine linen, goat's hair, red skins of ram and badger skins brought them, and they used those for the curtains and for the, wall, for, to, for the walls in the building. Everyone who had an offering of silver or bronze brought the Lord's offering. Everyone with whom was found with acacia wood for a work of the service brought it. So they used the bronze and the silver to make the, the altars and to make um, some of the utensils. They used the wood to build the actual, um, to, to frame up the building. All the women who were gifted artisans spun yarn with their hands, brought what they had spun, blue, purple, scarlet, and fine linen. All the women whose hearts stirred with wisdom spun yarn of goat's hair. The rulers brought onyx stones and stones to be set in the ephod and the breastplate, and that was the garments the priests wore. Spices and oil for the light and for the anointing oil and for the sweet incense. The children of Israel brought a free will offering to the Lord, all the men and the women whose hearts were willing to bring material for all kinds of work, all kinds of work, which the Lord, by the hand of Moses, had commanded to be done. This tells me the Spirit is ready to stir our hearts. I believe He's already doing so, and if no one moves, it's because we don't listen, but if only some moves, it's because most aren't. This is a call for us every single day to say, what can I give away today? By all means, it refers to the church and the, the, the ministry that we have here. But this is bigger than the church. This is every single day, what can I give? To whom can I give it? What's on the line? Our joy is on the line. You say, well, there's a lot of things that prevent me from doing those things and from being that and giving that, and I understand that. But if we want to receive the joy that God has set out in front of us, I believe it's worth considering what we got to do to go after it. We got to read the end of this story, though, before we quit. Over in 36, verses 2 through 7, just listen to this. This is so powerful. Then Moses called Bezalel and Aholiab and every gifted artisan in whose heart the Lord had put wisdom, everyone whose heart had, was stirred to come and do the work. They received from Moses all the offering which the children of Israel had brought for the work of the service of making the sanctuary. So they continued bringing to him free will offerings every morning. Then all the craftsmen who were doing all the work of the sanctuary came, each from the work he was doing, and they spoke to Moses saying, the people bring much more than enough for the service of the work of the Lord, which, which the Lord commanded us to do. You hear that? They bring much more. What if, what if there was a cry from the earth one day that said, God, these people are just doing too much. There's so much good being accomplished. There's really no, much, no more good that needs to be done. Now, of course, that would be a world where there are no, the, are no suffering and are no, are no, none that are in want. Uh, maybe a world that we don't imagine is possible to achieve. But can you imagine what they thought whenever they realized they had much more than enough? So Moses gave a commandment that they, 
that they caused it to be proclaimed throughout the camp, saying, let neither man nor woman do any more work for the offering. <laughs> the people were restrained from bringing. They were restrained from giving. For the material they had was sufficient for all the work to be done. They were so excited about giving away for what could be done, they brought way much more than they actually could use. They had too much. They were overflowing with offerings. And let me tell you what else they were overflowing with that day. Give, and it will be given to you. Of good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be put back into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. They gave a lot, but let me tell you what they received that day. Joy unspeakable. Because they realized the joy that is found only when you give your life away. Again, prosperity gospel makes this about stuff being given for stuff. This is not about receiving stuff. It's about receiving joy. Remember, for God so loved that he gave, and he finds joy in finding us. Zephaniah 3.17, The Lord your God is your, in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He finds joy in finding us, and just as Jesus kept his Father's command and abided in his love as he gave, he found joy in finding us. And we can find this same joy when we give like God, prioritize making an impact for his kingdom over making something for ours. I talk about this a lot, and maybe never from this perspective, but there is so much on the line. Don't let Satan deceive you in this one area. And in our country, this is an area that many are deceived in, who think it's all about making an impact for their kingdom when it's really about making an impact for God's kingdom. We can have this same measure of abundant joy when we give like our God has given with abundance of love. Don't let Satan take this joy from you. Give your life away and receive from God the joy unspeakable and full of glory. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for instructing us in such a powerful and important issue. Lord, we as our, our nature is to take and to save and to make and to buy and to spend and we get caught up in a world where we think it's all about what we have and what we've accomplished and what we can save and what we could show off and, and lord this scripture this truth this 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 text really can save us from that save us from wasting our life on things that don't bring any joy at all but and save us to a lifestyle that can bring us the absolute utmost joy Father, I don't know what everybody has in front of them. Lord, some of us, we just don't even know if this is possible for us. Maybe it just seems like an inconvenience, but may we rebuke the devil in that deception. There is joy to be found in giving our lives away. Through love, through generosity, through sacrifice. And it may not bring immediate return in a monetary way, but the scripture says, and you promise, it does bring an immediate return in a joyful way. So, Father, help us to do good, especially for those who cannot do good back for us. And know that from you we'll receive, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, joy 
unspeakable joy from heaven. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.